Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, or well, good morning of what's left of it. It's 11.56 a.m. Central Time here in West Texas, so I should say, see, I should have just waited and said good afternoon, everyone, but good morning. Um, It is Tuesday, October the 25th, 2022. It is currently 11.56 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And well, how are you doing? You upset with me? Frustrated? Irritated? Bothered? Have you been talking about me a lot? Well, if you've been listening to our series on understanding law and gospel, probably the messages you heard taught and preached on Sunday probably really was a tipping point for you. You've probably already, you're probably not even listening to me anymore. You've unsubscribed, you no longer follow me, and you're very frustrated, and you're very upset, and that that bothers me greatly. It really does. It does bother me that people would get so frustrated with me for really just pointing out a reality. Look, If Christians walk around and tell everyone, look, guys, you are dead to sin practically, not positionally, but in practice, you're dead to sin. You now have the ability to say yes to God, no to sin. You've now freed from the bondage of sin. So now you can say no to sin and yes to God, but, 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 but you're still going to sin. If if you don't understand how maddening that is to hear Christians say that, I don't, I don't understand. And what's, what's crazy when I just point out, wait a minute, guys, this makes no sense. If you tell everyone that you're dead to sin practically, if you tell everyone that you can say no to sin and yes to God, then you're basically telling everyone, not only are you telling, you're not basically, you are telling everyone that it is possible for you to live a sinless life. Because if you tell people that, you can't turn around and say, well, you can't be perfect because no, if I can say yes to God and no to sin, then you're telling me I can be perfect. Because if I can't be perfect, then that means I can't say no to sin. That means I can't say yes to God all the time. And that means that clearly I'm still in bondage to sin. So which is it? Like, it's just, it's maddening to me how Christians sit there in churches and say amen when the pastor is like, you've been set free from the bondage of sin. You can now say yes to God. You can say no to sin. And yeah, but you're still going to sin and you still can't be perfect. But, but, but you're, you're actually free from it. If I, if I, if I'm free from it, then I can stop it completely. If I can't stop it completely, then I'm still in some form of bondage and clearly I'm not free. But when I point this out, people get frustrated with me instead of getting frustrated with a completely illogical idea that denies the very reality that you as an individual is experiencing. Don't get mad with me. Get mad with the the idea that's completely illogical and denies the reality you know you experience. But yeah, people got frustrated because I called that whole system into question. And I called that whole system into question based off reality. 2,000 years of church history, there has been no perfect Christians. They've all sinned. 
and they sin all the time. You say, well, no, 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 they don't sin all the time. Really? Because I can give you some scriptures. You know what I'm getting ready to say. The Bible says to love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Christians fell at that all the time. All the time. We love self. We love the world. We love pleasure. We love everything more than God continually. It's a, it's a constant struggle. Love your neighbor as yourself. We love self above everyone else. And in many cases, any love we give to someone else is simply because we love ourselves, and we know we're going to get something positive from loving them. All right. So we fall short of that. Be ye holy as God is holy. You never accomplish that command. That means you live in a perpetual state of sin, a perpetual state of disobedience. But then you'll go around and tell everyone, nope, in Christ, uh, that we have been set free from the power of sin, from the bondage of sin, and we can say yes to God and no to sin. Well, then just stop sinning. Be holy as God is holy. Just stop it. You can do it. Well, no, you're like, well, well I can't do it perfectly. Well, then that means you can't do it. So which is it? But people get mad at me for pointing this out. It's almost like when I say this, people are like, what is he saying? I'm saying that which literally is proven by reality. I'm literally saying what all of you say while you're saying these other words. Oh, you say all of these other words, but when you get down to it, what are you saying? Well, you're still going to sin. You can't be perfect okay, well then clearly we're still in some kind of bondage. Clearly I can't just simply say no to sin and yes to God because if I could, well then I could just stop sinning and be perfect. It's not that controversial, but it's crazy how much controversy this has generated and how many people are confused and upset by it. Now, some people have appreciated the discussion and I'm very grateful for that. Others are not happy. I, but again, they can't really express what they're not happy about. I'm like, so can you be sinless? No. Okay. <laughs> can you be perfect? No. Okay. So you, that means you can't just simply say no to sin. Well, I mean, I mean, I can, but I just can't do it perfectly. Well, then <laughs> that means you're still in some kind of bondage. You're like, like, I don't understand where I don't understand what I have done to make so pe- many people angry. But I would challenge you to go back and listen to all of the messages so far and our series on understanding law and gospel. I think this is part 16. It's all been a lot of teaching. We've done history. We've laid out 25 theses. We've, we've went through the London Baptist Confession of Faith, where we agreed with almost everything until we got to that section on the uh, chapter 19 on law, paragraph, I think, 7, is where everything started really going well, we, 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 I pointed out some problems, and uh, you can go back and listen. But we are also in the midst of this series, reviewing some messages preached at a recent conference dealing with law and gospel. And right now, what I have before us, I have queued up, is audio from that conference where they do a Q&A. Now, it's only 25 minutes, so that's a pretty bad sign that obviously people didn't have a lot of questions. But I hope, I don't know what, remember, I don't review this in advance, but I'm, I'm worried that 25 minutes, this may not prove to be the most beneficial audio to review, but it's what it's number, it's part three in their series, and I'm listening to the series. So if I'm listening to it, you're listening to it, and we'll react to it in real time. If at this point in our series, you have some questions, 
please email them to me at newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. And I'll be more than happy to do our own law and gospel Q&A. But for now, we're going to listen to this law and gospel Q&A that was done at this conference. This was part three. They'd only done two messages, and then they did a Q&A. I don't know if they do a Q&A at the end of the conference, but I'm just curious to see what the questions are. And then what they'll do is I'll try to answer them as well. I'll try to pretend that I was the speaker at the conference. I'm assuming if I was the speaker at the conference, there would be some serious questions for me because of how I, because, well, even in this conference, he once again had this proper distinction between law and gospel. And then what did it disintegrate into? Hey, you can stop sinning. You have the power to stop sinning. You have the, you can just say no to sin and yes to God. Okay, well, then Christians don't need the gospel anymore. We just needed the gospel initially. Now it's just up to us, up to, up to, us to obey the law because now we can. Christ just came to make us, uh, Christ just came to save us from our failure in keeping the law, and then he makes us able to keep it perfectly. But that's not the gospel. The gospel came to save people who can never keep the law perfectly. Because what does the law demand? Perfect, personal, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. We fall short of that every single day. Now, you can't say we fall short of that every single day and at the same time tell Christians, you've been delivered from the power of sin practically, you've been delivered from the bondage of sin practically, and you can now say yes to God and no to sin. Well, then you can't say that and turn around and say, well, none of us is going to obey God perfectly. It, it's just a contradiction. So we're going to see that. So that's the questions I would be getting, and I'm, I'm interested to see. And again, if you ask me those questions, just before you ask the question, just consider your own Christian life and be open and honest with how much you sin externally and internally, how far short you actually fall of God's holy law and his standard, and then ask yourself why you keep sinning. Ask yourself why your life sounds like, hmm, the things I want to do, I don't do, but the things I don't want to do, I do. With my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but with my flesh, I continue to serve the law of sin. Ask yourself why you sound like that. Oh, maybe because the Apostle Paul sounded like that. Hmm, maybe, maybe we need to take that reality and reconsider the theological truths we proclaim dogmatically that goes against that reality. All right, are you ready? Here we go. So Tuesday, it's now Tuesday afternoon. It's Tuesday. It's lunchtime. So for your lunch, let's listen to a Q&A at a recent conference on law and gospel. And I don't know what's getting ready to happen. Hopefully it will be beneficial. Here we go. I'm going to spend a little time putting some uh, history and also just personality behind what we're learning from our brother and and even some of his own journey into this. So um, just wanted to start, you've already alluded to this, Mike, that you haven't always believed, understood, or taught these categories or these things. Uh, maybe there was even some time that you would teach contrary to them. Uh, how did you, maybe the, the short story of your journey process, how did the Lord bring you to understanding these categories of law gospel and to teach them and have the convictions you have now in, in ministry? Good question, Steve. I got saved in 1989, and I 
loved radio. I used to have a punk rock radio show back in Nebraska, and so I loved radio to listen. That's how we met, talked about punk rock, actually. <laughs> okay, now, interesting, um, and I just find it interesting from a historical perspective. He's, he's saved in 89. Um, I was saved a, a, a little before that. He was in Nebraska. I was in Texas. He loved radio. I loved radio. Um, for me, and, and I'm just, I'm going to connect this to law and gospel, the theological framework in which I begin to understand salvation, I, I began to, because I didn't understand that there was anything different, I become saved at the time when a book starts, has made some major, I, I don't know what kind of waves it was created. It, it made some major waves in Christianity. I didn't understand that at time. I just thought that this is the way you're supposed to think as a Christian. And that was very much the lordship salvation mentality as put forth by MacArthur in the book, The Gospel According to Jesus. I, I, I stumbled upon that book and uh, John MacArthur's uh, study guide on 1 John. And uh, I was listening to MacArthur every day after school for discipleship. I, I've, I've told before that every day after school, I ran home. I had three notebooks, one for Chuck Swindoll, one for Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel, and one for John MacArthur. Uh, Swindoll taught me how to apply scripture. MacArthur taught me how to kind of look at scripture from an exegetical verse-by-verse -verse perspective. And I don't remember anything Chuck Smith said because I typically fell asleep, okay? All right, that's a little bit of exaggeration, but Chuck Smith just came across to me as extremely, extremely boring. I know if you're a Chuck Smith fan, that's okay. But I did. And I wasn't much in agreement with the Calvary Chapel perspective as much more. I felt more comfortable with MacArthur and even more comfortable with Swindoll than, than Chuck Smith. Whatever. I mean, I was a teenager. I didn't know anything, but that's just kind of my perspective. So it did not take long that I started going, okay, Lordship, Lordship, Lordship. Okay, someone is not saved unless they do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. They better do those things. So if I'm not doing those things, I'm not saved. I have to do these things. These things must be evident in my life. Now, I understood the way to word it so I didn't sound like I was a Catholic, right? The way to word it was, hey, it's not that works save you, but if you're saved, you will do the works. And uh, But of course, if you just think it through logically, it begins to fall apart. Okay, you're not saved by works, but if you're saved, you'll do works. However, if you don't do works, you are never saved, which means I actually have to do the works in order to be saved. Like, it, it really is, no matter how you try to reword that, you're really just saying the same thing. Works are required for salvation. Wor without works, you are not going to be saved. You ha There has to be works. And so then I, I would look and MacArthur had like a 11 point test and how to know you were saved. And, and, and his first John study guide was a test, 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 test. And I remember multiple times in my Christian life going, I don't, I don't know if anybody is saved. I don't know if anybody is saved. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't, there were points that I literally thought maybe I'm demon possessed because I kept sinning and kept struggling with sin. I didn't understand. Now, obviously there was no reason to ever believe I was demon possessed, but I just viewed really the entire Christian life much more from a law perspective than a gospel perspective. My, my salvation 
And I never looked to my salvation as based off what Christ did. I was like, okay, Christ, Christ, I understood Jesus died and I actually had to believe in him, but it became more about do this, do this. I mean, all my Christian life at that point as a teenager was don't do this. Don't listen to this music. Don't go to those movies. Don't date that girl. Don't have sex. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't look at pornography. Don't do this. Don't go here. Don't do, don't drink. Don't dance. Don't. And it was like, don't wear this. Don't wear. And it was like, my goodness, there are so many rules. So it was a very law-based idea, and it was law almost given as the idea, this is going to, obedience to the law is what proves my salvation. I wasn't really given the comfort of, no, my salvation is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I don't think I was ever taught about truly understanding imputed righteousness. It was almost like Christ came to make me holy, and if I'm not holy, then he didn't make me holy, therefore I'm not saved. Not that Christ came to save a sinner by not making me holy, but but declaring me holy. So that that's really where, how I kind of started with this kind of a messed up view of law and gospel, really start, it, I'm going to place it right there with this, the whole lordship idea leading me to a very law-centric Christian life that led me to frustration, despair, and discouragement. And then it ultimately led me to self-righteousness, thinking that I somehow was fulfilling these things when everything in the world said that I wasn't. Now, for him, Nebraska, 89, loves radio, specifically, he says punk music. I would like to know exactly which punk bands he's referring. Okay, we'll get into our music debate. All right, here we go. Let's see. Let's see what happens to him. But I've since graduated from punk rock, and you're digressed back into it. Um, and so I loved radio. And my wife said to me, uh, when my father was dying, I wasn't a Christian, and we weren't married yet. We were just dating. She said, you know, there is Christian radio where you can learn the Bible. I'm like, I need to learn the Bible because I grew up Lutheran, and I didn't really have many categories as a Lutheran. Um, Jesus was God. The Bible was true. And I just remember, oh, I, I could tell I was a sinner. I'm listening to radio shows, listening to Calvary Chapel. They'd have altar calls, and I'd feel like I wanted to go up to the dashboard while I'm driving, right? You've got to go somewhere. I couldn't walk the aisle, so maybe I should, like, touch the window or something. I don't know, the expression of faith. And there it was a lot of the chapter-by-chapter teaching. Jesus is God. It's funny, 89, he's listening to Calvary Chapel. He's in Nebraska. I was in Texas listening to Calvary Chapel. I was listening to Chuck Smith. So just the parallel parallels are interesting. Now for me, I was saved. I, I became a Christian in a Baptist church, end up leaving the Baptist church to go to the Lutheran church. And it was the Lutheran church is the very first time I ever heard a distinction between law and gospel. Clearly didn't understand it. Completely all, basically rejected it at the time because I didn't quite, it sounded like to me, you're just saying you can just do whatever you want. That's what it sounded like. You're just saying, well, Jesus did it so I can live any way I want. Well, that's not true. You can't just do whatever you want because if you do, you're not saved, right? So I, I was throwing basically MacArthur theology at the, the law and gospel distinction as being taught by Lutherans. Uh, but so because I left the Baptist church because I believe I wasn't learning any theology, I go to Lutheran church, start hearing some theology and immediately am perplexed and confused by it. Let's see what happens to him. So he's listening to Calvary Chapel. I like the parallels here. Let's see what happens to him. No other way. And then I kind of graduated from that. And, and then I went to Grace Church and the Master's Seminary and, you know, on the positive side. 
He goes to Grace Church and Master Seminary. That's MacArthur. So he ends up, he ends up right there in the lordship world. So it's, again, the parallels are fascinating to me. He was Lutheran. I became Lutheran, right? I'm not a Lutheran now. So if anybody is, is I'm not Lutheran now, okay? And the only reason I left Lutheranism was infant baptism. I loved it. I, there was much about it I loved, but that's a whole different story. So uh, he was Lutheran. I, uh, I became Lutheran. He was listening to Calvary Chapel. I was listening to Calvary Chapel. MacArthur is what had a profound impact on me. And he ended up at Master Seminary in, Gra- in Grace Community Church. They, want, they, they introduced me to a lot of Puritans. They introduced me to a lot of Reformers. Uh, I, re- I, would, I would sit there and listen when John MacArthur would say, I read The Sinfulness of Sin by Ralph Venning every year. We didn't have computers, so I thought he said Venning because the V's and the F's sound so familiar, right? And so I'm looking up in all these catalogs, you know, USC libraries, Ralph Fenning, and I could never find it because it's Ralph Venning. And so I was learning that, but the hermeneutics classes that I had, either I wasn't paying attention or they didn't teach me these categories. It was immediately, that's a Lutheran distinction. And law gospel isn't Lutheran. It's in the Bible, A, and it's Calvin taught it, Beza taught it, Zwingli taught it, uh, Luther taught it. You see the reformers, they see things in this category, do or done. So I begin. Now, please now, do or done. All right. So it's just interesting. He was kind of, he was kind of getting the idea. Hey, that's a Lutheran idea. That's a Lutheran idea. And for me, I, that's, I came up, that's a Lutheran idea. It's a Lutheran idea. And, and the Lutheran idea is wrong because I was like, nope, the MacArthur idea is right. It's, it's lordship salvation is the way I understood. I didn't even try to see the Bible necessarily from a law gospel. I saw the, I saw the Bible more from the Bible has all the rules that proves that I'm saved. If you were like, what's my hermeneutic? Go through the Bible. When you see these rules, you tell Christians, if you're not doing this, you're probably not even saved. If you're not doing this, you should check your salvation. If you're not doing this, you shouldn't have any assurance. You say, well, that's not a completely correct view of lordship salvation. You may claim that, but look at the test that MacArthur gives. I've, I've gone through the entire test with my church multiple times. Look at the test. And then you're like, here's the test. And then you'll always hear in the, but however, you won't do it perfectly. But, but, but. So your imperfect, imperfect obedience is supposed to be sufficient to give you perfect assurance. It never makes any sense because if I'm not perfectly obeying the law, how could I ever have any assurance from my, in in my disobedience? My disobedience should, the law is not there to bring assurance. The law is there to drive me to despair so that I, my only assurance is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in imputed righteousness, not in the practical righteousness that shows up in my life. Because my practical righteousness is always incomplete, insufficient, and corrupted in some way, shape, or form. So, so it's interesting. He was learning, hey, that's a, that's a Lutheran idea. I was now in Lutheranism for a period of time going, oh, this is a Lutheran idea. But I was rejecting it because I was like, wait a minute, that, because most of my discipleship was still coming from Christian radio and really from John MacArthur was really, I mean, he's the one who discipled me. I read every book the man ever wrote, probably listened to every sermon the man's ever preached and read all the commentaries. That's where I, my, my, my whole focus was that's the way Christianity is supposed to be. It's that way. Everything else, I, I, 
that's the way I viewed it. And well, he's right there. So let's see. So what, how did I end up changing my view and how did he end up changing his view? To study more and more, I was in New England 25 years ago and I, I prided myself in being kind of the John the Baptist preacher. You think you're a Christian, we'll see. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of James. I'm very much like that too. I was very much like that too. Oh, you think you're Christians? Man, you don't even read your Bible. You don't even study your Bible. You don't even listen to sermons. You don't even care. You don't even love God. Yet you're going to claim to be a Christian? You don't even want to study. You don't even show up to church. You're here Sunday morning. You don't even come back Sunday night. Give me a break. Nobody even shows up to discipleship class. I can't even get anyone to come up here on a Friday night and study the Bible. You're all a bunch of, you're all losers. It's a joke. You're pathetic. That's, that's, yeah, that's kind of how I was as well. Because I was just like, what's your problem? You, you, all you want to do is do this and do this and you got time for this. You got time for that, but you can't memorize scripture. You can't read scripture. You can't study. You can't do anything, but serve yourself. Yeah, I was, I was very much along that same mentality is that the problem was Christianity was filled with fake Christians. They were all fake Christians, but of course I wasn't. Of course, MacArthur wasn't. We are the good Christians. Yeah. You talk about becoming self-righteous and prideful. I said, really looking at the law going, why don't I shut up? I'm a sinner just like all of them, just maybe in a different way. That's right. James could be possibly a sermon, and I think he's trying to encourage people to saving faith, and uh, you're either going to believe or kind of leave the church. And it was probably 1999, a college student said to me once after my sermon was preached, and I thought I did a pretty good job. Uh, By the way, you never ask your wife if you did a good job, because what you're really asking your wife, you know, if you say, how'd you like the sermon? What you're really saying is, would you please praise me? (laughs) So I don't do that anymore, because when I ask Kim, uh, how do you think I did? She she thinks that's a real question. (laughs) She's really going to give me the answer. Um, And they said, well, you know what? Um, You know, you do a lot of conviction for sin and calling sin out, which I appreciate because not many people do that anymore, but is there any good news for Christians? And I remember thinking, who are you? You're some 20-year-old college dweeb, and I'm lofty 37 years old as my first pastorate, and you don't know what you're talking about. I have a master's. I have a master's of divinity. <laughs> and I wish I could remember who that person was and call them and say thank you. Um, now when I get done preaching, I hope at the end of my sermons they say, that was encouraging. Because there can be conviction in sermons, and there must be as we talk about even sins that we commit and bitterness and other things, but then we give the balm of the gospel after we give uh, the law. And so I just began thinking to myself, you know what? This is not the way to do it, just scolding people all the time. All right, now for me, the change. Two major changes occurred. One, I decided to enroll in a Catholic university, a Catholic university, so that I could get a degree or work towards a degree in Catholic theology so that whenever I spoke in regards to Catholicism or someone else was to speak in regards to Catholicism, I could either critique, analyze, and speak to the subject authoritatively, not based off misinformation, because I got so very tired of hearing Protestant pastors say things about Catholicism that to me was utterly ridiculous and not even a fair representation of true Catholic theology. 
And I, and Catholicism intrigued me because there's lots of books and there's catechisms and there's, there's history and there's, there's encyclicals from the, from the popes. And it's just, there's so much history. Whenever you study church history, you end up right back looking at the Roman Catholic church. So I was fascinated. Well, well, I decided I'm going to study Catholicism. Well, it was in my study of Catholicism where basically I, it was, it basically came out basically this way. Your lordship salvation is just a Protestant version of Catholicism. <laughs> you're, you're basically saying you're saved by works. And for you to be saved by works, don't you need an infused righteousness in order to produce said works? So you're really denying imputed righteousness. You're really denying grace alone. You're, you're, you're playing semantics. We may say works are required, and you're saying, well, works aren't required, but then they are required because if I don't have the works, then I was never saved. You're, you're, just trying to, you're just trying to change it a little bit, but you're really saying the same thing. And that bothered me. I'm like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I'm not Catholic. Okay, I'm not. I'm, I I I accept the Protestant Reformation. Don't try to accuse me of Catholicism. But the more I learned about Catholicism, infused righteousness, you got to cooperate with that righteousness. You have mortal sins, venial sins. If you commit a mortal sin, you're no longer in a state of grace. Venial sin damages grace. Okay, I under, you have to do penance. You have to do this. You have to do this. And then even when you die, you end up in purgatory. The only difference is, as the Lordship salvation doesn't give you a purgatory. It's just like, nope, you're not saved because you didn't pass my test. And it's like, whoa, you committed too many mortal sins. So you are, you proved that you were never saved. Very similar, just, just really different language. So that really started bothering me greatly. Then, well, I ended up making an absolute fool of myself, an idiot of myself, found myself in sin, hurt myself, hurt people around me, embarrassed the name of Christ, total, utter failure and destruction, and realized I am not as godly as I thought I was. I'm not as godly as I pretend to be. So I started rethinking about sin, realizing, okay, let me truly look at the law of God. Let me truly look at the law. What does God's law actually demand? And then I realized I sin in thought, word, and deed by what I do and by what I don't do all the time. So either I'm not saved or I've misunderstood salvation. And if I look at 2,000 years of church history and I look at even at 1 Corinthians, here's a church filled with people. Paul refers to them as babes in Christ, but he tells them they're carnal. He tells them they're fleshly. He doesn't tell them they're unsaved. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. Okay, wait a minute. So I started rethinking everything and then remembered law and gospel. Law and gospel. I got to see things more from that perspective. And then I got prostate cancer, and I, in front of the church, I was fine. In front of my family, I sat down and read Psalm 103. God's to be praised. Daddy has cancer. It's going to work out, et cetera, et cetera. They're all crying. I'm crying. In front of the church, it was fine. But at night, I would sit there, and I'd think, I'm anxious. I'm nervous. And I thought to myself, do you know what? If I struggle with sin and I'm the pastor, what do I need for a balm? Why wouldn't I give that to the congregation? See, I think that's the thing. When you come face to face with your own sin, see, in front of the church, you look good. But behind closed doors, you realize, and that's the thing with, with 
the all the other systems is everyone has to look perfect. Everyone has to, nobody can just be honest. I'm worried. I'm scared. I'm anxious. I'm struggling with lust. I want to do that. No, 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 no. We can't be that open and honest here. Because if you keep admitting that, you're going to probably look like you're not safe. It, 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 you, it creates a, a, a almost a desire that everyone has to wear fig leaves. Everyone has to have a robe of self-righteousness. But when you come face to face, you're honest with your sin. You stop arguing the theology and you just honestly look at your life and how you, your rebellion, your attitude, your, your this, your lust, your pornography, your, 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 your materialism, your selfishness, your, your, your rebellion, whatever the case, when you really come face to face with who you are, you're like, for crying out loud, if, the, if my salvation is based off anything I do, I'm done. And then you realize I've got to look to someone who's actually accomplished it all, accomplished it all for me. And that is Jesus Christ. And then you remember, wait a minute, we, our whole teaching is supposed to be, we're supposed to be pointing people to the imputed righteousness. I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget when I had fallen on my face and made an, an embarrassment of myself and was going to step down from ministry uh, f- for a while and all the different things that happened. I was going to stay a member in the, of the church, but uh, stepping away from ministry, in other words, no longer being the pastor and all of those things. I remember just one gentleman walking up to me and all he said was, cling to the cross. He didn't say try harder, do better. Hey, you failure. He just said cling to the cross. That's your only hope. Wow. That that pointed me to that. He gave me gospel. He knew I didn't need law. He gave me gospel. I'll never forget that. And I just give them law categories all the time. And I don't tell, try to encourage them because I'm afraid they're going to go off the, the, the reservation if I just preach freely, free grace. And so between preaching the book of Hebrews, and by the way, when you read Hebrews, right, 13 chapters, there are some warnings there. That's certainly true. But it's all about Jesus until you get to chapter 13. Ten imperatives in chapter 13, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. But the rest is about Jesus. Do you see him in the Old Testament? Right? It just goes on and on. I thought, this has changed my life. So when people say, what happened in your life, Mike, to make you who you are now in terms of trying to comfort people, trying to encourage people, try to tell people that Christians uh, have their sins forgiven too, it was Hebrews and cancer. Because I realized when you sit under law only preaching, only one of two things happens. You either become self-righteous and you think you do it, that's my default. Or you say, you know what, I see the law and I don't do it. And I become depressed and despairing. So right. Law-based Christianity, it either will lead to self-righteousness. You've got to convince yourself you're doing it. Or if you're honest, it will lead to complete and total despair, discouragement, disillusionment. And then I'll use the word that's much more popular, deconstruction. You're going to be like, this garbage doesn't work. Christianity doesn't work. But the law-based system never has worked. It never will work. It either creates self-righteous, arrogant, condescending, judgmental Christians. Or it will break you and bring you to a total point of despair. And if someone is not there to offer them the gospel, in many cases, 
they're like, this Christianity doesn't work. And they're broken and, and frustrated and, and are somewhere probably still depressed about their time in Christianity because they, they walked away with a law-based understanding instead of a gospel-based understanding. So law preaching brings only one of those two things. When I say law preaching, law only preaching. Self-righteousness, that's what I had. And the people at church were self-righteous then. And then the other people who were despairing or didn't measure up, they just didn't stick around. They just needed to go find some help and some some spiritual oxygen elsewhere. So, And self-righteousness, that was, he, that's where he turned to. That's what I turned to. What broke his what broke his self-righteousness? He had cancer and he was sitting at home with worry, anxiety, and all these emotions that he couldn't let the church see because that would call into question his righteousness and call into question his salvation. So he couldn't do that. Well, me, it was becoming face to face with my own sin and my own failure. It broke me. It's amazing how, how we can live in sin, but pretend to be so self-righteous until it's got to be the right sin and the right way. And then all of a sudden we're like, why am I pretending? Why am I pretending? What made me think of it? Hebrews cancer. And then I started reading Olivianus. I started reading Owen. Uh, I started not reading Richard Baxter. Um, Richard Baxter will hurt you. John Owen wrote volume five in that banner series against Richard Baxter. And why did Richard Baxter visit people so much? Because he had to make sure they were doing not only God's law, but the laws that he gave, the extra laws. And so whether it's Platt or Piper or or um, Baxter or all these guys that are just pushing all this kind of final justification, I just think, you know what? It's creating either self-righteousness or despair. And for me, I think to myself, well, you know what, live a holy life or else. I'm thinking, yeah, I kind of do. And the other people are like, you know what, I love your wife like Christ loved the church. Uh, From my perspective, I do. From my wife's perspective, I don't think she thinks I do. And if you're not familiar with the final justification concept, it's the idea that our initial justification is by grace alone through faith alone, and our final justification is based off works. It's utterly... 1,000% 1,000% anathema to me. I, that, that is a doctrine that is so contrary to everything, we, the Reformation and, and what I believe we should be teaching in, about salvation. Is, it's all because of an imputed righteousness. It's all because of what Christ did from the initial to the final. It's all because of Christ. <laughs> So I just think what the church needs is, is good sermons about who Christ is. And then he'll give them his law, but it's the law from the hand of Christ as a guide. Uh, and I believe what the church needs is just teach the scriptures. Just dig into the scripture, whatever's there. That, that, that's the only thing. I, I, I don't want to impose a system upon this. Whatever the scriptures are, if the scripture's law, you get law. If the scripture's gospel, you get gospel. Wherever we are in the scriptures, that's what you get. I don't like just manu- manufacturing a template and placing it upon the scriptures. So that's the only difference I have and which sometimes gets me in trouble with the law and gospel people. I, your sermon, that was too much law or that was, I'm going to preach the text. Don't blame me, blame the text. There are times Jesus just gave law and he doesn't even mention gospel. 
Hey, go do this if you want eternal life. And the person walks away sad and Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. I've got some good news for you. And he doesn't always do that. Why not? Well, you take it up with Jesus. I'm just saying that my, when I preach the Bible, I'm not going to just impose, oh, oh, no, oh, here, I got to say these words in the text. No. What the text says, that's what we study. And if you'll listen to all the preaching, you'll get law and you'll get gospel. There you go. That That's the only difference I have there. Playing the, you know, proverbial devil's advocate, as it, as it were, uh, are you concerned at all in all this talk about preaching the gospel? What about all the easy believism so-called in America? What about all these professing Christians that we know are are, are, are false? What about all the massive churches? Are you concerned about all this? Don't they need the strict commands and imperatives? Um, how, how do you answer that kind of objection, which I'm sure you've heard before? I usually just say, let's close in prayer. <laughs> there's a false faith, right? There's a spurious faith. There's a faith that doesn't save. That's true. There's a demonic faith, right? James chapter 2 talks about that. The demons believe in what? Tremble. You know what that word tremble is? Uh, the Jews used to call demons hairy ones. Not that they had hair, but when a dog's mad at you or frightened, what happens to the hair on the back of a dog's neck? It comes up. And so demons have enough sense to believe God. They subscribe to the 1699 Second London Baptist Confession. And they're trembling. They're emotional about it. And so there are people out there that have that kind of faith and they're not resting and trusting and they haven't, you know, they don't have knowledge of sin and trust. That's true. But here's what happened for me, Steve. I used to think they were the main ones I were to preach to, the people with the false faith. The demon faith, the faith that, you know, just grew for a little while and the rocks and the soil and the sun and everything else wasn't right and they faded away in the parable of the soils slash sower. So I mainly preached to them. So then what about the, the mom that stays up all night feeding the children and the dad that's got two shifts and somebody that's got prostate cancer? What about them? So that I thought my ecclesiology should be, I should preach to the saints and then once in a while I'll direct my attention to the unbeliever and I'll say, I'll probably say it here on Sunday, and if you're not a believer, these promises aren't for you. And as S. Lewis Johnson would say, I hope you don't have any rest until you rest in Christ Jesus. There's a faith that doesn't save. And if you're just believing the facts and assenting to them, but you're not trusting in the Lord, you're not a Christian, so don't call yourself that. You live with your girlfriend for 10 years and you call yourself a Christian by your own profession, you're not. So there's ways to say that. But then to the Christian... Now see, now there, I, I agree. Faith, assent, and trust are knowledge, assent, and trust. Now, if you're not trusting, but the minute you say you've been living with your girlfriend for two years, you're 10 years, you're not saved. See, now immediately that's now you're, you've just slid right back into your old way of thinking. Now, your old way of thinking is, well, they can't be saved and do that. You're telling me that there are other people in the church who haven't been sinning for 10 years. Everyone in your congregation has been sinning for 10 years and uh, they for 10 years, people in your church have failed to love God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. For 10 years, people in your church have failed to love their neighbor as yourself. For 10 years, there's people in your church who have not been holy as God is holy. They've been committing sin for 10 years. Oh, but that sin. They've been living with their girlfriend for 10 years. That's the one. That's the mortal sin. That proves you're not saved. That's the problem with that system. See, he slid right back into the old system. I would just tell that person, if they claim to be a Christian, what you're doing 
is opposed to the Bible. What you're doing, God condemns. Now, why are you not bothered by that? Why are you not convicted by that? Why? They do need the law at that point. They knew they do need to hear the law that this is that God condemns this. To, in, in a sense, having obviously the implication if they're living with their girlfriends, they're engaged in fornication, premarital sex. But that you can't say that immediately proves someone is not saved because people in your church has been living in sin for 10 years. You have been living in sin for 10 years. You say, well, but it's 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 different. No, no, look, love God, love your neighbor, and be holy as God is holy. Those are just three. Love your enemy, love your enemy. Those are four. I can just go through and start giving scriptures that you fall short of all the time. How come you can fall short of all of sin? How come you can fall short of God's law all the time in one area and you're still saved? But if you fall short in a different area, you're not saved. That's the problem. It becomes it becomes subjective. It becomes illogical. It becomes inconsistent. You say, well, is there a false faith? Yeah, there's a false faith, obviously. But just remember, in Matthew 7, the people with the false faith are the ones who said, Lord, we preach in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We do mighty works in your name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So wait a minute. They had all the external actions that would seem to prove salvation and they weren't saved. The key is that false faith is if you have knowledge and assent but not trust, that clearly would be a false faith. But I, I don't know if you can just judge someone's actions and immediately make that determination. What you have to do when you see that is question, so tell me, you believe in Jesus? You're trusting in him? Okay. And talk to them about their Christian life. Well, does sin bother you? Like, like start talking and, and trying to try, give them a little bit of law, but don't forget the gospel. But, but see, we always want to be able to tell, we, what, here's what we want. We want a checklist so that we can check people off and say, you're not saved. But who are we to say that? Who are we to say that? We can say, this is what we can say. That action is incompatible with one's Christianity. But there's actions in my own life that's incompatible with Christianity. I know that, and I need to do better with it. I say even with the words, and I talked about that in preaching class last year, dear Christian, God's not mad at you. How could he be? Dear Christian, you're good with God. Dear Christian, you may be disciplined for your sins, but you're not going to be cast out because there's no condemnation. God couldn't love you any more. God couldn't love you any less. And I talk that way. So I'll say, unbeliever, I address you. And dear Christian, so I'm I, I mainly pre preaching to the Christians now is what I'm preaching to. I don't know why my ecclesiology didn't inform me of that for years. Hmm. You already mentioned some names just a few moments ago. Why is it that... The ratings go up when the names are mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it that some well-known preachers and speakers in our current generation don't seem to understand this, um, and they're so popular? Why, are, why is preaching gospel or law s seem to get crowds and adulations and, and even uh, plenty of um, publications on websites with gospel in the name? Um, do you have any 
insights into just the phenomenon around us and what's so evident, especially through modern media? Well, it's not to say anything about their person. I don't know that, but their theology, I think it's public, and therefore it's fair for me to grade it and critique it, especially if I have a congregation that I need to help, right? So they're not buying into that. And what you believe matters. And Daniel Fuller was very instrumental, and he wrote a book about continuity between law and gospel and denied the categories. If you don't have the categories of law and gospel and sanctification and assurance, you're going to struggle. And Fuller was John Piper's mentor. That's where he got his theology and probably to some degree Shriner and others. And therefore, I just think to myself, what you believe fleshes out into ministry and practice. And I'm going to say this, and I know some may disagree. Yes, we can go after Piper with this final justification concepts, and I completely reject it, 1,000% believe it's anathema. But he, I don't think he's going to say anything in regards to lordship salvation, but lordship salvation obliterates the concept just at the same. It, it obliterates it the same way. It's a Protestant Catholicism. That's what it is. And, and people get mad, but that, I don't, I'm sorry. I, I've already explained it. I'm not going to go through it all again. I don't know. He's, I guess in their next session, he is going to talk lordship salvation. It's going to be interesting to see how he walks around that, what he does with that. Practical application, all that. I really think the pastors want their people to be holy and to live holy lives, but they don't motivate them with a true Christ-centered holiness. They do it with some type of fear. I wonder if I really... You know what? I think that's the case. When people... What drives me crazy is when you try to move away from the lordship idea and you try to go much more from a law, gospel, and, and a b- proper understanding of their distinction and a proper understanding of that, and you try to be a more gospel-based Christianity instead of a law-based Christianity, you'll almost immediately get attacked with either you're an antinomian or you just don't care how people live. That is the most ridiculous thing ever. Anyone who's a Christian, we want to live godly. We want to pursue holiness. All right. The difference is we have to understand that we are saved not by the holiness I pursue or the holiness that shows up in my life. I am saved by a perfect holiness, which is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is my hope. And that's what I point to. And here's what happens. People, I think this is what this is what I think happens. I think people are are keenly aware of the sin and their own life. They're, they're so aware of their sin in their own life that they're afraid that if they hear, hey, you're saved by grace alone, you're saved by an imputed righteousness, it's, you're not, you can't, your salvation is not determined by if you do this or if you do that. They're so worried that if they hear this, then it's going to be like, okay, well, then I can just live any way they want. They, they doubt themselves. They're scared of what they will do. And then they project that on you saying, no, 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 you're telling me I can do whatever I want. They project something on them because they're scared. They know how much sin is in them. So they feel like they have to hold to a system that at least tries to scare them into being holy. All it does is it scares you into self-righteousness. It scares you into pretending. I think this is there's a psychological issue here at hand when everyone, oh, you're going to say free grace and you're going to say anybody can do what they want. No. Here's the thing. If you're so worried about everyone just doing what they want, you can't correct it with a wrong theology. Just because you may feel that theology corrects the problem doesn't make the theology right. And just we've had all the threats 
Hey, if you don't do this, you don't do this, you're probably not saved. You don't do this, you don't, you're probably not saved. We've had all of those threats. Church, the church has been filled with those threats. You've got the denominations saying you can lose your salvation. You got those preaching the more lordship idea that if you don't do this and this and this, you're not saved. We've had all of those threats. It hasn't made anyone any more godly. Christians still sin all the time. There's moral failure everywhere. So instead of going with a law-based system, maybe we need a more gospel-based system. They will be saved at the end. Do I have enough holiness? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Is it quantifiable? Do I desire God enough? Do I treasure him enough? Am I radical enough? When all those things need to be replaced with Jesus trusted enough, Jesus prayed enough, Jesus uh, lived enough, Jesus died enough, everything in Christ Jesus. And we'll talk about assurance tomorrow. They're forcing me, some of these writers, to be too introspective. Looking at myself primarily and I've said it a thousand times, maybe my favorite Luther quote, when I look to myself, I don't know how I could be saved. But when I look to the Lord, I don't know how I could be lost. That is so good. That is so... When I look at myself, I don't know how I could be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't know how I could ever be lost. All of these other systems tell you to look at yourself. Well, if you truly look at yourself, if you tr- don't argue with me, look at yourself and realize you would be lost. There's no way you could be saved. Then look to Christ and there's no way you can be lost because he was holy enough. He was perfect enough. He was godly enough. He loved enough. He did all of those things that we use as a test to test ourselves. Well, give me that test. And I'm going to say, and guess what? I'm going to write down on your test. Do you love others? Do you do this? Do you do this? I'm going to put, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I do these things 100%. I do them perfectly. I do them entirely. I do them exactly. I do them perpetually. Boom. I get 100. You don't. Because you're looking to yourself to do them. And I look to Christ who did them all for me. I think they want holy living, but I don't think they know how to get there. And so... It's almost, well, it's a Roman Catholic error is what it is. You go to Romans chapter 2.13. This is the litmus test for all people. Uh, You go to Romans 2.13. The doers of the law shall be justified. If you'd like to get to heaven, you need to do the law. But they turn it into sanctification. The doers of the law shall be justified. How are you doing? But it's in Romans 1, 2, and 3 where he's condemning people so that they're shut up against the law. And the doers of the law shall be justified. If you can do the law, you'll be justified. And therefore, it's the papists who say, well, you know what? Do enough so that you'll be justified. Calvin used to say of that verse, um, if you think that means to, if you think that's in the holy living category and you have to do things in order to be justified, you should be laughed at by children. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not how. And that is the Catholic error. You do this and you'll be saved. We say, do this to prove that you're saved. You're saying the same thing. (laughs) You're saying the same thing. No, do this and you will be saved. I can't. I'm condemned. But Christ did it for me. So in Christ, I do keep the law. In Christ, I do all the demands of the law. But if you think that you do them to somehow prove you're saved or to be saved, yes, as Calvin said, you should be laughed at by children. Because even a child, look, the children know, look, the mom and dad's arguing about this who want to act like they're godly. 
your children will tell the real story about how ungodly you really are. How we motivate people, right? Shall we sin that grace might abound? May it never be. But these final justification people, I don't know if that question would ever come up because, of course, if I believe that system, I would not want to sin because then how would I ever, ever make it? It's controlling people. Define final justification briefly. The opposite of condemnation is justification, right? We're justified. We're declared righteous by the work of another, the Lord Jesus. And he gets credit for our sins. We get credit for his righteousness, con- righteousness confirmed by the resurrection. And so Paul says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's the opposite of justification. Well, some teach there's going to be a later justification as well based on what we're doing now between salvation and glorification. And so they're teaching a final justification. If they want to say final justification is the exact same as initial justification, we already know what that final verdict is going to be, and it's pushed earlier in uh, time now. We know what future, ju- future justification will be. Not guilty? Fine. I don't like the terminology, but I'll, I'll let them live with it. But if it could be changed or altered, right? In, in Piper's introduction to Shriner's book, Faith Alone, he makes that allusion. It's just all over the internet uh, and other places. And you've got to have affections in faith now. What Saving faith has affections. The list goes on and on. I think it's all driving to make sure we live holy lives. So I don't think he understands sanctification. I don't think he understands justification, although you'll read him other places and you go, he does. But right here, when he's called on it, when I'm called on, Mike, 10 years ago, you taught eternal functional subordination. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I say, I did. I'm sorry. I repent. Take the sermon down. It's not that hard, and I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying, yeah, but when pressed, it, it's, you know, how much do you have to desire, to God, desire God to get in heaven? Answer as much as the celebrity says. There's nothing objective because you just have to do more. Spur people on. Go faster. Go harder. Try more. And by the way, that's exhausting. That's exhausting. That's why people go to those churches, and then they go find another church where they're, say, where they're told, you know what, you can have rest. You can have joy because it's found in the work of another. That's good. What are some works, and maybe you'll name these later, but what are some, do you think, helpful works or books that get to these distinctions of law and gospel and some of the, the distinctions, even contemporary issues that you're bringing up? I think Bridges is good because he's easy and he gives you all kinds of Puritan quotes, right? English reformers, he's just really so good at that. I like that. I mean, I could maybe put it this way to the congregation, and I'm not trying to scold you. When's the last book you read about Jesus? Huh? Okay, good. See? And so we want to make, pardon me? Okay, good. So see, I'm glad to be here, but lots of times you don't read about Jesus because we get in fights with our wife all the time. We figure we got to read a marriage book, Right? Okay, read a marriage book. That's fine. I think uh, Chad Van Dixhorn's got a new marriage book, Gospel Marriage or something like that with his wife. Okay, it might be w- wonderful. Um, what's, my, what's, what's my point? What's the question? <laughs> oh, other books. Other books, yeah. Yes. Uh, I, this is not a cop-out, but read the confessions. Read Belgic Confession. It cost him his life when he wrote that. Read Heidelberg. Uh, read Westminster Confession, read London Baptist. Of course, you have that, and you hear it from the pulpit all the time. You read some of these people, and you go, you know what? 
This is not new. Law gospel is not new. And it's not talked about a lot in these circles, right? At Master Seminary, I was, not, I was told it's a false bifurcation. Don't do that. And it shows because I think, at least in my circles when I was there, I had a lot of people who thought they measured up to the law. And so I'm trying to think what else would be good. See, at Master Seminary, they were taught that that's a false dichotomy. Law and gospel, don't do that. That's how you end up with lordship salvation. Lordship salvation is the direct result of an obliteration of the proper distinction between law and gospel. I, I told, I, I, that's been my per point for a long time, all right? Here, here, here. So um, the book that we were looking at and we're working on is um, God's, God's No, God's Yes by C. I don't have the book in front of me. Wait, yes, I have it right here. Here's my book bag. I'm like, I always have my book bag wherever I go. I don't go anywhere without my book bag. I take a shower with my book bag. Okay, no, I don't. All right, God's, that's a joke, everyone. God's no and God's yes. The proper distinction between law and gospel by C.F.W. Walther, W-A-L-T-H-E-R. All right, God's no and God's yes. I don't agree with everything in it, but it's a very short book. But if you just continue to listen to our series, we're going to work through all 25 theses. Now, we've rewritten some of them, but um, and just remember, if you go to our series on Law and Gospel on the Ch- uh, Church One app or the Sermons 2.0 app, find our series on Understanding Law and Gospel. Look for the message entitled Law and Gospel PDF, and right there attached to it is a PDF of these 25 theses that's in this book, and uh, you'll have that as a a file. And we'll be uploading that uh, PDF with other messages in this series as well. And uh, we'll continue to just make sure that it's attached there. In fact, I'll try to remember to attach it to this episode. When I upload this to Sermons 2.0 and the Church One app, I will try to attach the PDF so that you can have it. So um, there you go. Then that doesn't cost you anything. And just remember, we have rewritten the 25 Theses to be more in line with what we think is accurate and uh, if you listen to our series, you can see, you hear in real time us trying to rewrite the, the theses. All right, so let's continue. Abiki's got a good book on assurance, knowing... Knowing, growing, knowing, yeah, growing yeah. assurance. I, I, I think that's good. But reading books, oh, my point, yeah, read books about Jesus. I mean, that's the, I, I remember with Sinclair Ferguson, I took a class with him and we were out to lunch and, and he was kind and he said, Mike, tell me. I would, I'm going to, well, I, now I'm feeling a need here because he's, he's the one teaching uh, the proper distinction of the law and gospel. And he's not really offering any actual books on the subject. We need to create a list of the best books helping you properly understand the distinction between law and gospel. We, we need to find a list. We need to make a list. We'll try to create a list and turn it into a PDF file, and then we'll up, start uploading that to the series. Because, I mean, he's at a conference on it, and he's not really giving any, he's not, read books about Jesus. By all means, do that. But when people are trying to truly understand the distinction between law and gospel, yeah, I mean, there, there's, yeah. Okay, so let's continue. About your ministry, and this was years ago, and I said, well, I just finished my first two books. And he said, what's the topic? What'd you write about, Mike? And I said, well, they're both, the first two books are both about Jesus. And he instantly said, they'll never sell. <laughs> he meant the topic, but I think also it was true as my writing because I'm not the best writer. So he was right, they never really sold much. I think you can get them pretty cheap, you know, the dollar bins. 
And part of it is we, we, we just are the how-to. People, people love how-to sermons, and they're easier to preach. It's harder to preach about Christ Jesus every single week. And sometimes it's harder. Again, I, once again, I disagree. Preach the text. Preach the text. Preach the text. Don't just preach Jesus into a text. Preach, Je- preach the text, and if Jesus is there, great. Don't force it into there. And I know somebody, like, he's in every verse. No, that's just not accurate, not true. He is found throughout the Bible, but he's not in every verse. It's just, you're, it's just ridiculous to try to shove him into it. Just watch the text. What is it about? What's going on? As we've been working on Amos, just trying to figure out what's there, trying to understand it, who it's about, who's this, that, who are these words to? When is that going to happen? Just deal with the text. Everybody wants to, everybody has their, their little template that we need to preach sermons like this. Throw out the template, preach the text, deal with the problems, the difficulties, the questions, the struggles, have your people work through the text with you to figure it out. My, my teaching goes against every rule in preaching, but I'm tired of all the sermons as usual because we've, we've been doing that and Christians are more biblically illiterate than they've ever been because pastors always have their template and their agenda. Get rid of your template. Preach the text. There you go. harder to hear because you want to do something. I want to do in terms of I want to think and I want to believe and I want to rest and we are just built doers and it's, you know, it's the Home Depot deal. And uh, I just think reading Christ-centered uh, things. So what I try to do at home personally is in the morning I might be reading my passage that I'm going to be preaching that coming Sunday. And I'll read it in the original and I'll read it in English. And I'm looking over it that I might read a proverb or two, some psalms of praise. And then I always try to read some of the Gospels just to remember who Jesus is. Right? And you read Mark and you just think, this is an amazing book. If there were kids here, I'd say, this is like the Indiana Jones of the Bible. It's just go, 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 right? And there's just, you know, up you go in the roller coaster. Click, 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 click in chapter 1. And then you're flying down in the roller coaster to the confession of Peter in chapter 8. And then it's click, 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 click. And then you're flying down to the confession of the centurion in chapter 15. And it's just going. You're like, hey, I should read Mark. See, I made you want to read Mark, didn't I? You don't have to call it the Indiana Jones of the Gospel, though. That's helpful. I was just thinking, too, about the times I texted you when I found your book in the used bookstore and stuff. Maybe the, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's but okay. You, you have, but speaking of your books, the one that's not out yet, what's the current project you're working on, and um, how, how, do you, it, how do you hope it'll be an encouragement when it comes out, hopefully soon? Sure. Well, I've been doing some stuff for American Gospel uh, I just recorded some American Gospel 3 movie stuff about the Holy Spirit and charismatic stuff that should be out this fall. I did the Law Gospel series, and then I just did a sanctification series. And that's on American Gospel TV. Right, AGTV. Yeah, AGTV. And they're all related to Law Gospel. I mean, everything's Law Gospel. It's Assurance Law Gospel, Lordship Law Gospel, Preaching Law Gospel, Sanctification Law Gospel, Evangelism Law Gospel. It just all revolves around what God commands and who the Lord Jesus is sent by the Father, and then He and the Father send the Son. So everything's around that. So I, I talk about assurance in conferences a lot because people struggle with assurance because they sit under law preaching. They sit under preaching that does no law gospel and they just keep getting hammered. How can you call yourself a Christian over and over and over and they have no assurance? Well, I, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if I did a conference on assurance or just radio people said, here, read this. 
And so what I did is I found um, 20 articles written by Thomas Watson, Thomas Brooks, J.C. Ryle, old people that were under public domain so I could put them in the book for free. (laughs) Wrote a 6,000-word intro. That's copyrighted, by the way. And so it's a 31-day guide to assurance called Gospel Assurance. There's an introduction, some short little days, some longer days. Uh, Vitzius, I have a chapter by him. Some days will take you longer. I'm setting it up so they're easy at the beginning, harder at the end. So it's called Gospel Assurance, 2,000 2000 pages, 200 pages. It should be out in about a month or so. Wonderful. I've had the privilege of seeing a a pre-pub copy, and it's really encouraging and simple and clear, Mm. helpful, accessible to everybody. So we'll look for it. And it's going to be called Gospel Assurance. That's the f- yep, official yep, title. Yep, subtitle, A 31-Day Guide to Assurance. First I th- called it a 31-Day Devotional, but then somebody said, ah, I don't read devotional. So I said, okay, guide, because the third use of the law, guide. Yeah, that's right. It's good. Awesome. And it's just through Amazon. Yeah. I'm not going with publishers anymore. They try to make you change the names, change this print, change the this, change the theology. It's all law. Seriously, it, it is surrounded law everywhere. Well, that's good. We'll send when that when you have information uh, coming out, publication, everything. We'll try to send an email out through the registration as well for this weekend. Thanks so much, brother, for this evening. Um, and that concludes the Q and A. And I think the next one they're going to talk about lordship. I'm a little nervous on how he's going to handle that. Because again, I believe, oh, I mean, he acknowledged it. Master Seminary told him law and gospel is a Lutheran thing. It's don't, don't go with that, that concept, that, that separation. And that's, and they ended up teaching lordship. I mean, I don't see how you can't see lordship as an obliteration of a proper distinction between law and gospel. All right, I'll leave it there. Hope everyone's having a great Tuesday. There was your lunch hour. And you get to feed upon, well, a discussion about the proper distinction between law and gospel. Hopefully it was beneficial. We'll be back some point either today or this evening. There'll be more. There'll be more. There, there's always more to talk about. But I'd love to get your thoughts and your feedback. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. If you have any questions in, in regards to a proper distinction between law and gospel, let me know, and I'll do what I can. We'll do our own Q&A uh, episode if we need to. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.